Today, we have the honor to be talking to Joseph Rubin, a conductor and music historian. An expert on American popular music, Mr. Rubin specializes in living history concerts and recreating the music of 1890 to 1949 in a historically accurate manner. Mr. Rubin was appointed curator of the Ted Lewis Museum in the capital of the world, Circleville, Ohio, in 2012. He has since cataloged all of Ted Lewis' original music arrangements, papers, photographs, recordings, and spearheaded a renovation of the museum for its 40th anniversary. Mr. Rubin is the director of the new Ted Lewis Orchestra and has restored many of Lewis' manuscript arrangements from the museum's collection. Joseph Rubin founded the Canton Comic Opera Company, a 501c3 nonprofit based in Canton, Ohio, dedicated to the preservation and performance of American operettas, which is why we're talking to him today. One of the foremost authorities on American operetta, we are so cool, Mr. Rubin has devoted his efforts to researching and restoring the masterpieces of this forgotten art form, including such works as The Prince of Pilsen, The Wizard of Oz! the Sultan of Sulu, and Madame Sherry. Mr. Rubin also mounted 100th anniversary productions of The Chocolate Soldier by Oscar Strauss and Victor Herbert's Naughty Marietta in Palm Beach, Florida, along with several successful off-Broadway productions with the New York Musical Comedy Company. Mr. Rubin currently resides in New York City, and you may get to meet his new puppy, Ruby. <laughs> Mr. Rubin has been honored with several awards for his contribution to the arts. He received a proclamation from the state of Ohio for outstanding achievement and a mayor's citation for his contribution to the arts. Same, Cuomo just gave me that. Yeah, for it's New fine. York state. It's really cash. Yeah. We're very excited to be talking to Mr. Rubin today all about the Wizard of Oz musical extravaganza. Enjoy. The Wizard in Penzance. The Wizard in Penzance. <laughs> it's a mashup. Get ready, y'all. Well, hello, everyone on Down the Yellow Brick Pod. MK and Tara here, and we are so excited to be chatting with Joseph Rubin today. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you. So, Joseph, we are so excited to hear more about your work with American Musical Productions, but since we are both theater people and you are as well we would love to just take it back to the beginning and hear a little bit about your experience getting into the theater and how that brought you to where you are today uh well uh my grandfather uh who was born in 1926 he got me into all the music of uh the 1920s and 30s and 40s that he he grew up with in the 40s and what his father was interested in was light opera of Sigmund Romberg and Victor Herbert and all these things that unfortunately most people have no idea what I'm talking about today. Uh, so uh, he really exposed me to that. I saw that a lot of these works uh, were not being performed at all. So I made it my mission. This was back when I was actually a sophomore in high school to revive these works and get them back on the stage. So I started uh, the Canton Comic Opera Company, which was an all-volunteer uh, theater company based in Canton, Ohio, to restore and perform these historic American uh, operettas and musical comedies that hadn't been seen in decades and decades. Uh, so 
From there, we started, uh, we put on shows like Sousa's El Capitan, a comic opera that's probably the closest thing to Gilbert and Sullivan that any American ever wrote, which is phenomenal, and The Prince of Pilsen, The Sultan of Sulu, and Madame Sherry, and all these works that nobody, that were huge hits. I mean, these were revived up until like the 50s and 60s, and then they dropped off the face of the earth, and nobody had done them since, so I had to go to archives all over the country, and stuff got materials from all over the world from archives to find the the manuscript orchestrations and the prop books, the librettos, the and the vocal scores, and put piece these things back together. Because there's not like I could just go and say, hey, I want to rent... Uh, the Wizard of Oz from 1902 and put it on because nobody's done it since I just actually found a recent newspaper article I've been doing some research the last performance that I've been able to find of this original production of uh, The Wizard of Oz was 1945 was the last they, they last anybody last attempted to do this monster of a show uh, so, because there was a newer version that was put together to ba- based off the movie, and I think 1943 or something at the St. Louis Muni. And then the professional theaters were putting out that version, but this amateur company in Milwaukee still rented the 1902 version, interpolated over the rainbow and a few of the Harold Ireland songs, but they were still had the characters from the 1902 show, like Imogene the Cow. And, and Trixie Trifle and all these. So we, you could tell that this was actually, they were still using the, the 1902 version. But man, it's a trip. This show is a trip. Out of all the shows that I've ever, that I've revived, uh, it might be the worst one. <laughs> um let's let's hear more about that because um we just started our research as we were telling you like the the musical extravaganza has we literally say every time we bring it up on our podcast we're like the extravaganza we just get so excited because it's so mysterious to us like what was this big beast that Mm -hmm. propelled um wizard of oz into pop culture toured it throughout the entirety of the U.S., um, but was nothing like the book. Like, we are just mm-hmm. so um, obsessed with finding out more about it. So I want to hear something that blew my mind was why they use the word extravaganza, because it's like this mashup of all different styles at the time. Like, I was reading, it wasn't really an operetta, but it was an operetta mixed with um, pantomime, mixed with, like, British musical. So it's like, what is this? It feels like it was trying to do everything at once. So tell us why um, you, you'd say it's... Um, Tell us what you think about that music <laughs> and the well, word extravaganza. Extravaganzas, uh, you 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 defined it pretty closely. It's a mashup of basically everything that was in theater at the time: vaudeville, musical, uh, operetta, you you name it. Uh, and it's it's really an excuse to do whatever they wanted. And what really the main thing about extravaganza is the scenic and the costume effect. The fact that they had all these special effects, these amaz- amazing scenery. You look at the pictures of this original production, you just imagine what this was on stage. And this is before movies. This is before mass movies. This is before television, before radio. To be able to see this kind of stage um, magic. It was was this was popular entertainment. We were reading something about the. I mean, 
I hate to call it the original pandemic. It's not the original right. pandemic, but the Spanish flu outbreak in the 19, like 1918, 1918, 1919 time of that having something to do with like stopping a lot of musicals that were well known at the time. Like it just kind of put a, a full stop on a lot of the shows that were the commercial successes. And, and we read about one that I think continued on, tried to continue on within Through the it. pandemic mm-hmm. um, that was happening at that time. So that's really interesting that it fell away come the 1920s. It started mm-hmm. to lose. Well, musical taste changed too. When you look at the actual show itself, the music is, as a musician myself, uh, it's just terrible. The very worst of, of Tim Panelli. for this show, it was so dependent upon the personalities that were in Montgomery and Stone and everything that they could do whatever and they weren't listening to the quality of this music. When you look at it today, it's like, oh my God, is this terrible. And, and I hate to say it, because we put so much work into the show to restore and put it together, but it just uh, to me, it, it didn't hold a candle to for the Prince of Pilsen, which was the, the 1903, same same season, or the next season, by Gustav Luders and Frank Pixley, which today plays like it was written yesterday. It's phenomenal. This show is is antiquated because of all these extravaganza things, because of all these interpolations of songs about sitting bull and football and Baffins Bay and and uh, you name it, they had, a, they had a song about it. And they weren't good songs. But they had such great performers and such great scenery and, and, and costumes that, you know, and the story is basically there from the book for the most part. There's some, there's a lot of changes to it, but you have Dorothy and you have a lion. The lion doesn't talk, but you have a lion. Uh, you have a cow instead of, you know, Toto because you couldn't fit a man in a dog, tiny dog costume. Um, and uh, there's some other extraneous characters they've added. But you have to remember that L. Frank Baum wrote the original libretto. It was it was since, you know, after the original version, um, Glenn McDonald came in and helped spice it up, putting some jokes and, and fix it. But the basic premise was this is L. Frank Baum who wrote the book. This is how I think this should play on stage. Wow. And so how did you even, you mentioned a little bit of how you started to stage this revival, but I mean, could you tell us a little more about how you even approached that? Because even trying to research it, it's it's challenging to really get a full picture of what this was like. 
It was a hard, there's a great book by Mark Swartz that's out there. I think it's Before the Rainbow that you probably have. So that's, it's a phenomenal book. It portrays the show in a much better light than it actually is, I think. So Correct. <laughs> it's, it's got great pic, I mean, the pictures are so Amazing. compelling. And, uh, so I, we, and it's such a great title. In fact, let's, nobody had done it. As I say, we didn't even know about 1945 at that point. At that point, it was, we were t- looking at about 1918 was the last performance of it. So as part of our mission was to dig up these, these pieces, uh, and hope that they still played on stage. And it did play. I have to tell you, the audience really loved it. Uh, it wasn't up to the quality of Victor Herbert or, 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 or Gustav Luders or anyone else of, uh, of a higher musical level, but Paul Teachens was not that kind of, who wrote the original score for this, uh, was not as good of a composer. He was not as gifted as everyone else. So that's why they, that's why the original producers brought in all these interpolations because they looked at teaching scores and said, this is not good. We have to try and make this a little better. So they started bringing in all these Tim Pan Alley songs, uh, to spice it up. And teachings, I think, had a nervous breakdown and went to Europe. Uh, so, uh, and I don't blame them. Uh, they didn't keep much of his music in the show. Probably because it wasn't very good. Uh, but some of it is still there. The end of the finale of Act One, pantomime, big pantomime, beginning of Act One with the, with the cyclone and all those special effects. It's, it's atmospheric music. So sort of like silent picture, a couple of it stuff before silent pictures. Uh, but he wasn't a, he wasn't a popular composer like Julian Mitchell, uh, who was the director really wanted for this type of production. Now, of course, the sequel to this was Babes in Toyland, which had Victor Herbert. So you have a score that has that still has songs that are known to this day and still a title that people know, whether they haven't seen the original version of, but it still has shelf life. That's that's what happens when you have a composer that knows what they're doing, as opposed to this hodgepodge of Wizard of Oz. By the time they got to Baby Toyland, Glenn McDonough, who helped with Wizard of Oz, and Julie Mitchell, who also staged Wizard of Oz, they knew what they were doing at that point. They said, we're going to do this. And so they improved upon the, the, the format, I think, you know. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, mm. I didn't know that this was like um, a precursor for another collaboration. That's also interesting. Like, you just made my mind go whirring in the direction of the MGM film, like Disney always wanting to do Wizard of Oz, him wanting to be the one to do that. And he ended up, I think Babes in Toyland is one of the first things he produced. It's a terrible film, unfortunately, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) I still love Ray Bulger in that film. Well, Ray Bulger is phenomenal. I love Ray Bulger, but yeah, I feel bad for him in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I just enjoy his dances with the umbrella and the water shooting out of the ground. I'll never get over that. (laughs) Yeah, he's great. But yeah, like that's so interesting that Babes and Toyland even had a relationship with Wizard of Oz. Pre those iterations or interpretations down the line. Yeah, it was basically a sequel. If you look at it, it's the same producing team same same uh book writer and a different composer who knew what he was doing uh and it, i think it played it played the same theater 
at Columbus Circle. Oh, wow. And it was Circle. like a year later? Yeah, it was about a year later, yeah. Wow. wow. I need to now research Did that. Did not that know is. that. And Wizard of Oz was still, of course, touring all the country for, for years after that point, too. And so I don't know if you want to get into the, the restoration part of it, this is how uh, how we, we put this all together. So uh, basically what happened with the show is there was all these interpolations that there was not a set version of the show. The opening started in Chicago in 1902, brought it to 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 uh, New York in 1903, and uh, the sh the show was constantly changing. And we were doing that for the fact that people would come back and see it multiple times. So. Montgomery and Stone are now singing their new parody on football, this brand new game that nobody knows anything about, and people are dying every football game because they get smashed up, the, and that's what the football song is about, people being smashed and killed, and, and their skulls cracked, because that's what was happening with football. It was a satire on that, which is, it's a lot of, that's a fun song. So they're like, come back and see this amazing football number, and people will come back and see the amazing football number and see the show again. So they had to keep it fresh, so it would keep running. <laughs> Just bring along the ambulance and call the Red Cross nurse. Just bring the undertaker up and make him bring a hearse. Have all the surgeons ready, found out all that work today. Oh, can't you see the football teams are lining up to play? Football, football, that's the game for me. Break his hip, his hip, hooray, kick him in the knee. Soak him on the five-yard line, we must have him playing. And then also on the tour, and they kept on changing stuff. So the, the packages in 1911, approximately, the show was frozen and, and sent to the Whitmark Music Library, which is still sort of in existence today. New name, I think they just took them over. But for stock rights, for stock and amateur rights. So at that point, they took what, uh, they took the show approximately about 1904, the tour, they froze the show. And that's what they used for the stock and amateur package. It had stuff in it that wasn't in the Broadway opening. It had stuff in it that was from the tour. It had, it's a whole mishmash of, uh, of a mess. And so we started with these orchestra parts, which were preserved, uh, and looked at them and said, for the majority of this, these are not the original orchestrations, unfortunately. They they must have had uh, the piano sheet music, piano vocal score for all the interpolated numbers, and a staff copyist just arranged it. A copyist, by the way, who was not a very good orchestrator, arranged this stuff. So it was just terrible. The brass were playing the melody line the whole time underneath the solo. You can't, that's not what it would have been on Broadway. So the teacher's orchestrations, we have reason to believe that were the originals, they were working off of his full manuscript scores. So the all of his stuff seems to be pretty legitimate, but all of the rest of it was just redone for the amateur package. So we had to go through, we had to take that material and go through it and parse out what looks original and what wasn't original. Then from the stuff that wasn't original, how can we fix it so it sounds more acceptable for what a 1902-1903 show would have sounded like. And luckily I had working with me uh, an orchestrator and a mentor by the name of Larry Moore, who had spent 10 years of his life 
restoring babes in Toyland. So he do this stuff back, this material back and forth, and the orchestrators of the period, and could make this these orchestrations and fix them to sound more of what it might have sounded like on Broadway in 1903. So it was a lot more work than restoring a show by Victor Herbert, for example, who all of his, most of his uh, full scores are preserved in the Library of Congress. You can go back and see his handwriting and exactly what he wrote for these orchestrations. And they preserved, they weren't reorchestrated a lot of his stuff for the, for the stock rental packages. But, uh, so you can hear what that sounds like as opposed to what this terrible mess of Wizard of Oz. And you know that these orchestrations are not necessarily kosher. So we tried to fix that. It was a lot of effort. And we also had to put in some numbers that we wanted to round it out a little bit. We put back in the football number and uh, some other numbers that were cut that weren't in the rental version to give them a better idea of sort of the, the tune list of what it was on Broadway. So it was a, it was, and we had a lot of choices that were, I, I think uh, the count of somewhere around a hundred songs that, that cycled in and out of the show over, uh, 1902 to 1908 or so. It, it was touring maybe even longer than that, I think. Uh, so there's a lot of music that went in and out. And we, we played, and a lot of it was published. Most of it was published sheet music, which was Tim Pan Alley. So you could hear this stuff. Most of it's terrible. But uh, some of it is, is not bad. Oh I love goodness. that. The Sally song, is that correct? Is that what we listened to? Oh, Sammy. Uh, Sammy. Sammy. Sammy, the Sammy song. Mm-hmm. That was like the yeah. most, one of the most popular songs. That's right. And that's a cute number. That's a really cute number. And the shtick, of course, with that was that Trixie Trifle in her pink dress uh, would sing to who was ever the Sammy box, which was the box on, uh, in, the, in the theater in Columbus Circle, and would sing it right to whoever aged ball patron, and they would fight who were to get those tickets because they wanted to be, be sung to. by Because it was a very for that time, very sexually charged song. <laughs> right, oh, right. Yeah. It was. And it, this, was a, this was a big a thing to be, to sit there and be sung the song to. to and we, we, of course, unfortunately didn't have a box scene in the historic theater where we were performing, didn't have boxes. But the when we did the show, uh, our Trixie was able to go in the front row and brought an old bald man on stage. And he had a great time, time of his life. Uh, it was it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. That's a cute number. There's some of the numbers in the show are are very cute. Oh, my God. 
Well, when I think Wizard of Oz, I definitely think sexually charged music. 100%. So that makes complete sense. Well, you see all these girls in tights. And, and every, I mean, this was, you, you think about it, it was, it was, there was a lot of, you had to appeal to the tired businessmen, you know, to get them to buy tickets. It had to appeal to the businessman of the I day, read that right? in the New York Times review from the original that it was like, more tights than you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and I was yes. laughing so hard. Yeah, that, that Times review was not particularly kind to the actual show itself. They liked the, they liked the sets. And the effects, but they, they weren't particularly kind of, because there was also a, a thing about shows that came from Chicago were clearly, from that cow town, clearly below the level of anything that would start in New York. So there was that, they had to, they had to overcome, they certainly did overcome that, that hurdle because it ran for so long and it was a huge success, but they had to overcome that diversity coming into New York City because it was always thought anything from Chicago was subpar, which is, I, I don't think was a hundred percent true, but you know how New Yorkers are. We haven't changed much nope, from that, from no, that 1902 no. description. Wow. Wow. I just can't even imagine to like, Say, like, I keep putting myself as reading these stories and now hearing you talk even more about, like, what this process was like. There being a hundred songs to choose mm, from when yeah. you were restoring this. And what that must have been like if you were on the road doing this show and they were like, hey, the wizard's going to be singing this song tonight. Can you be prepared for this song? Here it is. Like, how wild oh. that is and how that's not something musical theater embraces at all. Mm, unless no. it's, like... That it is style, solidly right. like a freestyle love supreme is like literally the only thing I can think of. It's right. something that is embracing improv, embracing mm-hmm. audience participation. Everything else is like, you are set. This we're is what you do. They're literally You're like, locked, we are locked in. in. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting. The closest thing in modern theater to this kind of extravaganza plot, basically plotless, not plotless, but like cats is, is, is a similar kind of, uh, of concept. Not that that, I don't know which one's worse. Uh, <laughs> Both I, nonsensical. I <laughs> yes. And uh, also, like, wasn't Wizard of Oz the longest-running musical for, like, a hot second? They share that in common. There you go. <laughs> Similarity. But it's actually interesting to think that, too. Like, yeah, Cats was one of our most successful Broadway musicals of all time. Yeah. And it's really nonsensical, which is interesting. I don't think anyone knows what it's about. No, but, like, there is something that, like, people love seeing these yeah. shows that... Um, just enchant you mm-hmm. in the over, overwhelming stimulus of it. Like right. like you were saying, like seeing so many women on stage dressed <laughs> as poppies, like that right. had to do something at that time. It was gorgeous. We were able to we recreated these costumes, and it was it was it was one hell of a scene. That was that that's one of the best parts of the show. Now, obviously, one of the things that they actually brought into the MGM movie. That part that's solely from the script of the show that's not in the books that's something that they bought from, uh, from the script of the show and I think one of the was was one of the gossip columnists from the in the 30s when they heard they were doing Wizard of Oz how could you throw away the score and all these songs we remember from 1902 and how how scandalous that they're right that this Harold Arlen is writing this new score they should do all these old chestnuts that we remember and yet Nobody remembers any of the music from 1902, and all they remember is 1939. Uh, and we get audi- we had audience members, of course, that came in thinking they were going to see Judy Garland. And somebody wrote, 
very uh they were very upset afterwards but they had a they followed what happened perfectly on stage they gave they said why is there, there's a pirate on stage and there's a cow and why is there a cow? but they, they they gave back they were following the plot 100 percent. they just, it just wasn't what they wanted to see but uh you can't escape those comparisons these days unfortunately in popular culture because it's just the movie is so huge and it's happening now like there mm-hmm. has recently been a new film has been announced of the wizard of oz and all the like media right now that's around it is like, how is this going to happen mm-hmm. because of the MGM being iconic? But apparently this film wants to go back to the book. It's not going to be a musical from what I'm gathering. So it's mm-hmm. going to go down a different direction, which is, I think that's lovely and warranted at this time in order. I think it's important. Like it's, we love the wizard of Oz so much because you can keep reinterpreting it and then find these relics yeah. and relate to people in 1902 mm-hmm. based off of what they found as entertainment. Like that is beyond cool. And I actually wanted to ask you about like your commitment to preservation work is so mm-hmm. fascinating. I mean, us just like reading about your legacy of work and what you've done for um, operetta. Mm-hmm. Um, what has, I, I know you talked about your grandfather. What, has made this work so important to you. This is uh, American popular culture history, and a part of our history that's been unjustly forgotten is not taught in schools for the most part, uh, and people aren't exposed to this anymore. And the 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 generation that knew well, the generation that knew Wizard of Oz is long, long gone. But the generation that even know knew the Sigmund Romberg and the Student Prince and Desert Song and, and Rudolf Fribbel and all all these great this great music that was part of our culture for so long is is basically gone. And who's going to keep this music alive? Because this is this is people remember Gershwin. People remember uh, Leonard Bernstein, but we have to preserve our cultural history from the turn of the century uh, to the the 1930s that is unjustly forgotten in my mind. And that's my my goal to keep restoring these shows, finding the materials, uh, getting them, you know, and the restoration process is a very laborious thing in which you have to take the you know manuscript music note by note into the computer, then proof that, and then retype out the librettos and match everything up together because it invariably never matches for whatever reason or another, and it, it's a it's a huge process that nobody wants to undertake because it's so expensive and and so difficult. But we've done uh, about twenty shows uh, from between eighteen ninety and uh, nineteen twenty. 1923, I believe. Uh, and our goal at this point is we're creating these shows that we can offer these to educational institutions uh, from high schools to colleges that have music departments that are putting on shows like they do a Merry Widow. And, and, uh, everyone does Merry Widow in college age. Why can't they do uh, a Red Mill or, or a Naughty Marietta? Or or a Wizard of Oz if they if they have enough people to do it. Why not? Why not? I mean, it's got a title, 
And so these, so children, uh, I'm, you know, I'm 32 myself, so I'm not, I'm not old. But so, so college kids, and they can be exposed to this music and, and carry it further, you know, so it doesn't just die and stay buried like it currently is. So that's our goal. Wow. So I'm cool. so grateful <laughs> to you. So, so if anybody wants to, to, to perform Wizard of Oz, we have... The materials, they're all ready to go. Once this pandemic is over with, uh, they can come to our website. And we'd be happy to, uh, to to give you the materials to try and put on this show. It's a it's a trip. We'll do it in our we'll do it in our room. We'll cast okay, our stuffed animals. Good. Perfect. when you're doing this restoration process there's holes that are going to be left open to your interpretation too because you can't identically fit everything together it's like such a puzzle that you're putting back together and also um awareness now of like what is insensitive to the time that we're in what is depicting a false narrative and how that factors in now to your work um and evolution in the work that you do yeah, it, it definitely takes uh, time to look at this and make sure that uh, you have to look at it from a historical perspective. You have to they, they really have a disclaimer as that this is what was done in 1902. We're not trying to, uh, we're trying to recreate history as in a very historically accurate fashion, which is very important to my work that we do these shows as they were written. We're not completely taking them from top to bottom and revising them like everything on all these revivals on Broadway where they take them from top to bottom and change it. Uh, and you have to be sensitive, of course. Uh, luckily, Wizard of Oz doesn't contain, in the version that we did, and the songs that we selected on purpose doesn't, don't contain too many terribly uh, horrific stereotypes uh, for for anyone. So we were lucky in that fashion. But there were some songs that were interpolated that definitely could not be performed today. Interesting, and like this, these um, these musicals. It's just so interesting to see what was accepted of that time. I right. think it is important to go back and see, like, oh yeah, these songs existed. I know, like, Em and I were researching, and we're like, we don't even know what this style of music is. Mm -hmm. How they've labeled some of the musics that were definitely from the minstrel era. But this is what people were listening to, and this is why I think we also are where we're at now, because these are the stories that we were fed. But it is interesting just to have that 
element and it, it's not even Wizard of Oz is um, free no. of it. And that's what's, I think, so interesting. And, yeah. you know, it's a children's fantasy book, but it's not free <laughs> of any of our, like, you know, systematic problems that we have. I was curious. So Canton Comic Opera is now American Musical Productions. Did it? Yes. You changed the name? We, we recently changed the name because we, we branched out into a slightly larger mission statement in which we're doing not only musical theater, early musical theater, but also uh, popular music from the, the turn of the century through the 1940s. We've been doing a lot of uh, big band stuff of bands that nobody's uh, heard in, in decades, like Hal Kemp and his orchestra. We did we just did a centennial World War One concert with all the music from World War One and the original orchestrations. So we're we're trying to bring back uh, all the basically the whole popular music scene because when you look at it, this music, musical theater music, was popular music back then. And it isn't today by any stretch of the imagination, but it was then. And so it's basically the global picture of what was on the radio, what was, you know, being played on people's parlor pianos, because everybody could play the piano and had a piano and had the sheet music. And that's why you have all the sheet music. And we're trying to bring back uh, this whole era of, of music, which, uh, is, which needs to be heard and played as it was played back then. Because it's one thing to take this music and rearrange it today with modern sensibilities. You can't, you, there's too many layers today added on top of 1902 that you could never orchestrate knowing only what somebody in 1902 would know. And that's what makes it very difficult with these restorations, particularly when you have to orchestrate stuff that is the, the orchestrations are not existent. That you have to put yourself in the mindset and say, we're, we only know what is in 1902. We can't reference what's in 1903, <laughs> uh, musically what happening. So it's, it's a really, it's a challenge, but it's, it was, it was a lot of work to put it together. Uh, but it, it, it paid off and it was great to bring this back because no, if we didn't do it, I don't think anybody else was going to. I know. Right? <laughs> We've seen no traces of no. it. So this is just so cool to see that you did produce this yes. musical. You did take the painstaking time to sew this thing, stitch it back up in 2010, which is not mm-hmm. that long ago. Right. And I love, too, that you brought up um, how everyone could play a piano back in 1902. And that's something oh. that, like, makes me smile seeing a, in this book that we've been using as for research, The Oz Before the Rainbow that you brought up by Mark Evan Schwartz. Yeah. They have, like, the green uh, souvenir book, which was all the music. That's what people would buy. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, wow. Like, now, if anything, we we get, like, a link to download (laughs) the the album during, you know, after a show. We might get a link to download. Right. Um, Not even, like, a CD anymore. That feels even, like, very old. Um, Oh, my gosh. So it's just so cool to feel that. I also, I would love to know how you've um, been doing in this pandemic since you run something that Mm -hmm. clearly... um, has been affected. Right. <laughs> yeah, we've unfortunately had to uh, cancel multiple uh, productions and tours and stuff uh, over, as everyone has. Uh, and we're, we're just hoping that uh, it, I've been working nonstop on restoring more shows. That's basically been what we have the, if you have downtime, I've had downtime as everyone has had now, more time sitting inside with nowhere to go and just taking and restoring as many more shows as I possibly can because I've had a I've collected
accepted, fortunately, a backlog of, of musical comedies and operettas of all these orchestrations that have to be put in the computer. It takes forever. And I've just been knocking more shows out. I just finished uh, one of the first American op- successful operettas, Robin Hood by Reginald DeCoven, uh, that's never been uh, restored correctly. And just been going through the list and, and restoring more so we can make them available, as I said, if not for our own purposes to perform, for other educational institutions that will hopefully take them up and, and put them on stage. Wow. Yes. And can you share just a little bit about your restoration process? Because I'm like, wait, what is this painstaking work? I just want to hear like a little bit of your details of like how this happens. You and the computer doing this. You and the computer doing Okay. So uh, basically there's a musical notation program called Sibelius. And uh, you basically take the, you know, I have the manuscript with, I don't have the original manuscript copies of these. I have I have photographs or scans uh, of all these from archives all over the world, really, uh, that I've collected these and searched them out because no, there's no list of saying, this is here, this is here, this is here. You know, it took years and years of digging to find to find uh, not just even the librettos for these pieces, just the scripts, because those were never published. For In the case of Wizard of Oz, the piano vocal score for the entire show, you know, music from the top to bottom, was never published. It only existed in manuscript form. That There was probably a few copies that were sent out with the rental materials, and that only exist, there's, I think, two copies in archives left. So you have to find all these building blocks first, and then once you have them all together, then you can take, go and put them note by note in the computer, use instrument by instrument, flute, you know, down the line, violins, all everything. And then from there, you have to format it, page, and uh, make it look pretty on the page, improve it, make sure there's no wrong notes, because there's invariably some copyist who was drunk at some point would miss a note, put it on the wrong line, you know, or even just by mistake. It's easy to put a note on the wrong line, so you have to make sure that all that's fixed the problems that were in the original materials. And then what I, all these musicals, when they went out in in stock and amateur form, they didn't have full scores, full scores being the the conductor can see every single instrument and the and the singers and see what everybody is doing at a certain point of time. That was unheard of in musical theater up until basically the the world of the computer came in until computerized music. So what being able to see all the parts together uh, you could you could learn a lot from that. Fix problems that this doesn't match with the actual vocal score. It should, but it doesn't. So you have to fix that, or it's missing pieces, you know, so on and so forth. So that, and then you type out. You have to type out the librettos, reformat that, and then you know, export everything so it's ready to perform it and eventually print it when you're ready to do it. But it's a it's a long process to. To do all that stuff. Wow. I mean, like, that, that is, is painstaking. Tedious. Yeah. Very tedious. But it's worth it. When you can get the, even with Wizard of Oz, when you can get this music from the page of these terrible manuscripts up in front of musicians and get them to play this stuff for the first time since 1909 or whatever. Uh, it's it's really like experiencing history. It's like opening King Tut's tomb, you know? It's it's really it's really fun. It's that that's the that's where it pays out. And getting it in front of an audience and letting them hear this stuff and experiencing it basically as it was heard back then, that's the best part because you, 
the audience really can connect to it because you think, oh my gosh, this is over a hundred years ago. How could anybody sit through a three and a half hour show <laughs> in this in this day and age? Everything is twenty minutes long and the attention spans and everything. But you get them in the theater. You 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 put them, put this on stage. Put a full orchestra in the pit. You know not five pieces like on Broadway, but 30 pieces in an orchestra pit and get the excitement going and they, they have a great time. They have a great evening. It was a fun, it was a fun performance. I have to tell you about it. It was fun. It was a lot of work. It was a lot, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I wish we could have seen it. I know. It sounded so cool. I love how you're, yeah, that feeling of history coming alive. That's what, that's what we go for. I like to call living history productions. We try and bring it back to what it was in 1902 or 1945 or whatever year we're talking about. We want to be as close as we can to even down to the instruments the musicians are using. We use original percussion equipment from that era with calfskin heads. You can't get that sound from plastic heads and modern drums. They don't sound like that. We try and bring back as much as we can of the uh, like, for example, the special effects in Wizard of Oz. This this is particularly this would be relevant to this. Uh, they were done via what was called a magic lantern, which was a precursor of the movie of the uh, movie projector, and it's slides that actually have uh, s- uh, that move when you can turn a crank on the slides and they like they move around and they like rotate and stuff. And we actually had an artist create based on the descriptions in the newspapers uh, images of Dorothy and Imogene the cow and floating through the air that I was able to find somebody who had was a magic lantern collector had an original machine brought them to the theater and we created this custom slides of the of the of the cyclone and and projected this onto the screen just like they did in 1903 from a machine that was very similar if not uh, to what they would have used in 1903 uh so using that their special effects and the kind of lighting that they would have had and everything uh, with that in mind, really brings the era back. So, did you not have air condition either in the theater <laughs> to just get it really? I hope so. Effective, very true <laughs> to form. Well, the, these shows were yeah, summer was not the time to go and see shows in New York City. But uh, no, we didn't. We didn't suffer that. We've done. Unfortunately, had to deal with that in the past with some other venues that didn't have air conditioning. But no, we would not subject that. <laughs> I'm just I'm just time. messing with you. We don't need that. That much is history. something I read though, which was baffling because I believe this opened in Chicago in June of yeah. 1902, and I mean it was awful heat, and it, that's actually a theme with Wizard of Oz. Heat and Wizard of Oz is a they theme together. with the movie too. The yeah. movie being so the awfully hot yeah. in filming. But the same thing was with this because, like, the actor who played the lion. Oh my God! The actor that I had played the lion almost passed. <laughs> That's a thing. Yeah, like, it's like these are really harsh circumstances yeah. for these folks. But <laughs> even the audience members had it rough in the 1902 production. But they didn't care. It seemed like. I mean, they had ventilation. They were designing theaters in a way that it could be ventilated. It wasn't air conditioning, but it was ventilated enough that they weren't going to pass out. People on stage is a different matter because they had all the lighting and the grease paint. And the costumes, you know, the lion costume we made weighed a ton. I can't imagine how much it would have weighed back in 
and, and without cardboard and without the bottom things. Like I can't even imagine lugging oh eighty my. pounds no, for an entire show. You. There's one picture in this book of the lion, like in action, and like he's in down dog. <laughs> he's like, he's in like a really like I was like I would never want to be on stage no. in that position. That would wear you down. No, sign me up for the poppy girls. Like I would, I would yeah. love wear to the be, tights. I would love to <laughs> just like you know flail around in the background. That would be great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so curious if you remember any like audience feedback or reactions yes. that you got or even from people in the cast or crew just like their experience of the show I'm so curious it was it was a trip that's I mean everyone was like we got a lot of people excited about it because it was Wizard of Oz and the history we had a whole uh, contingent from the Wizard of Oz Society. I saw you had Jane Albright on, on as a guest, and she was there. I remember uh, her being there. She was there, and a whole bunch of the Oz Society members. And they just, they of course ended up. They had a, they, they just were waiting for their lifetimes to see this thing, which they loved it. They were cheering, and the audience. Uh, I could tell, you know. Of course, I was conducting this, and I was in the orchestra band, uh, but I could tell that. It, th- once it started, it starts off completely in pantomime, of course, with the whole, like a 15-minute pantomime sequence, which is something people are not used to seeing on stage these days. So it's sort of like a silent picture acted out. So that was a little bit of a... Uh, they had to warm up to it. But then once the girls came on stage and once you got the lion and, the, of course, once you got the scarecrow and the tin man, they were like, oh, this is actually Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Once they saw, started seeing characters that they recognized, because they're recognizable, the Scarecrow and the Tin Man are still different kind of costumes, but you, they are, those are the characters. Once we got going with the plot and got going with the, some of the music, uh, they really warmed up to it. It just, you know, by the end of it, they were just cheering and they, it, it was, it was a fun, it was a fun evening. It was a long evening <laughs> that people are not used to shows that long, but it, and this was not, I think it was longer originally. We cut, we left the libretto, but we cut out, I think, well, we cut out encores. That's the thing. You look at the show and every single number would have been, almost every single number would have been encored multiple times because the people, you. this is before the recorded sound was huge, before people could afford uh, uh, photographs. You know, the only way to hear this music is if they performed it multiple times <laughs> on stage. And the performances were so amazing, they, of course, merited the encores. So Montgomery and Stone taking, you know, multiple encores after Baffin's Bay and the football number and everything. So that would have dragged the, the evening out even even much longer. But where was there to go in 1902? You know, they're going to go home to darkness. If you're lucky, you have electricity. But what are you going to do when you get home? Go to sleep. There's no, there's nothing else to do. So this was it. This was, this was, this was entertainment. I would love that. Oh my god! I feel like it really feels like we've fallen down into a world that's like, how did this happen? But it, that's why it's right. so it fascinating because it did happen. It happened. It did happen. And I like, I love too that you recalled like how an encore was so important back then. Right. Like that's so, how you got the music married to your brain, and that's how you can go home and sing it to your kids, and then maybe learn it on the piano because you knew how to play piano because everyone knew how to play piano. Right. It's just, yeah, you buy the sheet music in the lobby as you're walking up. 
The GPUs are covered. They have them for sale in the lobby, and you go, you say, oh, I remember that number I'll, from the show. I'll buy the music, take it home, and play it on the piano. And that's that's how the people live. But unfortunately, the show had such forgettable music <laughs> that none of this has has stayed in any kind of, you know, we don't have a Toyland or a March of the Toys like Babes in Toyland had. We don't have anything that anybody could even remotely say, which might be a good thing, I guess, because it was none of the stuff was great. That's what you get when you get Paul Teachens, right? He never wrote anything after this. He was a one-hit wonder. I think he went on to be a radio uh, music director somewhere in the, in the West, Chicago, maybe, or St. Louis. He was from St. Louis. Uh, but he didn't do much else in his life. He didn't write anything else, as far as I know, that ever had any success. I think it said in this book, he, um, he kept a really tight diary. So they actually, he references his diary a lot in this book, mm. but then there's a huge period of silence. Oh, wow. He was not happy with the show. He, it's, and it's he when really the show was happening. Down. Like, yeah. He just stops recording his life, and then he comes back, and it's like the show didn't happen. So it's wow. like, oh, this really was not this was, a darker this was period not yeah a darker period in his life, which is that's so hard because I think him and L. Frank Baum they were like buddies that were. were like you know kind of workshopping this idea of making Wizard of Oz into something bigger mm-hmm. together, and then it just like it literally got taken out of their hands. I think for a good reason because what they came up with was not good, and the the real people, Julia Mitchell. And Glenn McDonald knew what they were doing and had a lot more <laughs> experience. So they could make a show. They made a show out of what, whatever they, the, you know, these inexperienced people have never wrote a show before. How are they supposed to put on a show on Broadway? So they, they turned it into something. And obviously it was something. They, they got rich off of this stuff. This was, there's no, no, the producers, they, everyone made money on this show. This was a huge success, monetarily, uh, critically for the most part, and it toured forever. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible to think about every little, and there's a, if you go to this vintage Broadway website that I'll give a plug for David Maxine, who, uh, uh, it was a, was a great help with this production too. He put together this website where you can track in your hometown, this show almost invariably played wherever you're from. It played, it played in Canton, Ohio multiple times. Uh, the opera house isn't there anymore, but it played that. Uh, and it's amazing to think about that when you, when you think about all these, every little bird got to see this huge, this was the theatrical event of the season. When this came to your opera house in your little town, this was, this was it. Uh, now what? I want to find out if it was I'm, in my hometown. I'm sure we Where performed in a theater that I'm week. from California. Where, oh, uh, maybe not in California. California was another world back then. Where in California? Maybe New Jersey. Definitely New Jersey, probably, <laughs> at some point. She's from Modesto, and I'm from, like, central Jersey, where Rutgers campus is, New Brunswick area. So it may have played there. Like I could see. Well, I was I was just gonna thinking as uh, as um, you were talking about. We probably performed in a theater because both Em and I met on tour. We did Sister Act forever on the road, (laughs) and we we did so many touring houses. We probably were in a theater where they did. We were in one because we were in a lot of the old, 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 old venues, smaller towns. um, Yeah, yeah, that were opera houses primarily too, which I loved those because you could just feel the history. I mean, the mothball air is just like (laughs) there's not many of them left. I have to say, from that period, there's not there's a few, but there's not many from 1902 that are still active 
uh, to this day, because that's a long time ago. But that's a few. <laughs> I'm sure you can look at that list. But you look at it's amazing to see the, doing one nights with this show. I can't imagine bringing the set in. And setting, and they were talking about how many stage hands were required to set up the show in the 20, like 20, 30 stage hands to bring in the show and to run the show and all the, everything that was needed. But they had, to, they had a train, they had, right? They had, had a, they had a train, they had to put it back on the train and go to the next, go to the next stop and do it all over again. I wouldn't want to be a stage hand that was dealing with I would love to, job. I would love to be in that train experience for one day. One just to day. Like, and witness then what their world would would have been like. Like I could just see also like the actors like up all night on the train like playing card games oh, yes. or something like Smoking. Yeah. just yeah just being like a hot mess but like in the best hot way. Oh, oh wow. this is so cool to just get to like hear about yeah and this. go back yeah. into the past and just also like wonder about what it would have been like. And right. I think that's just so fun and needed to do. Um, I think that's what gets us into this stuff because if you could visualize what this was like. You want to see what the material was that they were performing. Wow. It's such a beautiful place to leave this conversation of just how important it is to have these escapes and what theater has meant throughout our history and getting to rewind 121 years ago to this legacy that Wizard of Oz had of really offering this escape. Yeah. And I was also, if if I could pick your brain real quick. Sure. Um, <laughs> what kind of, you've mentioned so many tactics for keeping history alive, but yeah. for someone like us who yeah. feels like we're just diving into it or maybe anyone listening who, whether it's Oz or something else from a bygone era, era it feels, what would be your advice to sort of keep Ooh, like revisioning that. and keep preserving this history and this past, especially as time changes and keeping it alive? Any thoughts? Uh, people have to read and be aware of this history. There's there's so many resources today that are at our fingertips that even 11 years ago that didn't exist. You can go online and there's you can search Billboard and Variety and The Clipper and you can literally search names and it's searchable text that 10 years ago, you would have to go to the New York Public Library, the Performing Arts Library, which I would do every single Friday and spend the day there and looking through microfilm on the the crank machines in order to look through each page to try and find what you're looking for. Now, everything is indexed. Not everything, but so much more is available. And dive into this history. Get a handle on it. Read books. Read the Oz book. Read history of American musical theater prior to Oklahoma. Do some research to see what actually... It was not... Stuff happened before Rodgers and Hammerstein got together. I'm sorry to say to some people who don't recognize that. But there was a lot of stuff that happened before that time. And people I still to today don't recognize that. And I think it needs to be more well known. You don't get encores and doing stuff from an earlier era these days. The the big the big players aren't and it's up to it's up to you to do the research and find this stuff. 
I'm here to help. That's why we're restoring all these all this material. So it is in a performable fashion because to do what we do on a restoration basis takes a very expert knowledge and experience and time and stuff that most people can't, a theater company can't just take that on and do that. It'd be too much work. That's why we want to try and become the 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 American Musical Productions, the place where people can come and find Oh, we want to do Wizard of Oz or the Prince of Pilsen or Madame Sherry or something. They can actually get the materials that's ready to perform that they can give to their performers and say, this is something that's interesting. This is part of our history. Let's put this on stage and let our audiences step back in time. That's really, it's going back in time to experience history. So. Oh, and yes. you're so right. Like, it's a responsibility that all of us have, like, especially as artists. Like, we're mm-hmm. two artists. Like, I mean, I've done a few shows where a dramaturg, a dramaturg has been hired, but most of the time that's most an expense that kind of gets written off. Mm-hmm. If it's, It depends on, like, what level, what kind of theater you're doing. But it, I always am like, that's my favorite part. Like, that's the stuff I really want to um, know because... Um, I just think that's like the coolest thing to like just find little tiny um, pop culture things of the day that would have affected how I would have lived, walked about my life. All that stuff is just so, so cool. So there is just this responsibility to do it. But the work that you're doing is making it excessively so much easier and uh, for people to um, click onto a website as opposed to, I love what you said about going to library every Friday. Like instead of that, like, you know, a little bit more... um, archaeological library process. It's really archaeological digging for this stuff because you're t- we're talking over a hundred years ago now. You know, it's hard to believe that 1921 is a hundred years ago <laughs> now. I'm, I, I can't. It's, it's, we're getting further and further away from it and that's what concerns me. The further you get away from it, the less people have any connection to it and if we lose that connection and we don't create new connections the, once we're gone who who's gonna who's gonna keep this stuff going and it has to keep going joseph thank you so much for meeting with us thanks for spending the time with me it's always a pleasure to talk about any of this stuff i'm i'm up for it at all times thank you and we're very grateful for what you're doing the work you're doing preserving these histories and i i can't wait for to see what you do in the future, once we can all sort of come back to the theater, we're really know, we're rooting for you. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to get to get back on stage and join them. so much for listening to down the yellow brick pod if you are feeling frisky with your fingertips scroll on over to apple podcasts and leave us a glowing rate and review each person who leaves us a review will be entered to win our end of the season oz giveaways Mm. including a gift basket of musical adaptation goods which trust me you aren't going to want to miss All previous reviews will also be considered in our entries. We see you. Until next time, catch us at Down the Yellow Brick Pod in our Technicolor scrapbook on IG and partying on our Patreon. Gratitude to our patrons of present and future for making more magic possible. Let's escape to Oz soon, okay? TTYL!